0: This is a recording of analysis of Mormon's narrative strategies employed on the Xenophyte narrative and their effect on Limhi by Nathan J. Arp. Published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Nathan J. Arp. Abstract. Mormon's editorial art brings the narrative of the Xenophytes alive with a complex tumble of viewpoints, commentary, and timelines. Mormon seems to apply similar narrative strategies as those used in the Bible in his approach to abridging the history of his people. A comparative reading of the various accounts in the Xenophite story provides the close reader with a deep picture of Limhi, the tragic grandson of the founding king Zenith, and the son of the iniquitous king Noah. Noah's wicked rule brought his people into bondage. His conflicted son Limhi's efforts to free the people, although well-meaning, often imperiled his people. Fortunately, Limhi's proclivity for making poor judgments did not extend to his acceptance of the gospel. In fact, coexistent with the repeated errors Limhi makes in the narrative lies one of his greatest strengths, his willingness to accept correction. This is a vital characteristic necessary for the repentance required by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what redeemed Limhi from his comedy of errors. It is this quality that can also redeem us all. Limhi's love for his father, in the end, did not doom him to make the same mistakes Noah did. When the messengers from God came, Limhi listened and accepted their message. Mormon's characterization strategies described here are a credit to his art and support the hypothesis that he is an inheritor of the poetics of biblical narrative. His narrative strategies not only characterize the cast in his narrative, but also characterize him. The care Mormon took in crafting his abridgment reveal his observational prowess. He saw God's hand in his people's history, and he went to great lengths to teach his readers how to see it too. His characterization of Limhi is a personal message about how wickedness and tyranny affect individuals. End of abstract. Many of us come to the Book of Mormon unprepared to appreciate its unique literary merits. This is understandable seeing how the book of mormon's literary heritage comes from the hebrew bible which also has been underappreciated by many of its readers this is not completely our fault as modern readers because the hebrew bible's literary conventions are unique amongst the world's literary traditions it has only been since the mid-20th century that scholars have begun to elucidate these conventions in the hebrew bible Furthermore, it has only been since the 21st century that these same literary approaches have been applied to the Book of Mormon. Applying biblical literary approaches to the Book of Mormon not only helps us better appreciate and understand the Book of Mormon, but also may indirectly support the Book of Mormon's own claims for its ancient authorship. For example, when Joseph Smith Jr. published the Book of Mormon in 1830, it would have been extremely unlikely for him to have written it with literary conventions not fully understood by scholars until the 1960s or 1970s. It is not the purpose of this present paper to prove that the Book of Mormon's usage of biblical literary conventions evinces its ancient authenticity, especially since this paper's application of these biblical literary approaches is speculative in nature. However, this paper still suggests that the Book of Mormon is what it says it is. This current study applies biblical literary approaches often called narrative strategies to Mormon's own approach to organizing the Xenophite narrative. Specifically, this paper attempts to scrutinize Mormon's use of repetitive structures in the sequence of narratives spanning the book of Mosiah, chapter 7 through 25. This study will focus primarily on the structure of repetition encapsulated in the sermon of Limhi, Mosiah 7, who summarizes the history of his people and the much larger history of the people as abridged by Mormon, comprising Mosiah 9-25. through These two histories not only represent a repetition of the Xenophyte history, but also represent two distinct viewpoints, Limhi's and Mormons. It is important to note that these viewpoints are different in various ways. In agreement with biblical narrative strategy, this paper presents the narrator's point of view, Mormons, as the correct viewpoint of added import. Limhi's viewpoint, although comparatively wrong on various issues, is nonetheless intended by Mormon for inclusion. I argue that Mormon intended for the reader to compare these two viewpoints, knowing that it would flesh out the characters of Zenith, Noah, and especially Limhi. I have included the table below to aid the visualization of the two main viewpoints, as well as provide the organizing framework for the overall paper. In its attempt to analyze Xenophyte narrative, this paper also highlights Mormon's ingenious narrative strategies, which not only characterize Limhi in uniquely personal ways, but also characterizes Mormon through how he handles this narrative. We see a good but deeply traumatized Limhi err again and again because of his father, but in the end he still finds salvation through the gospel. The way Mormon's narrative treats Limhi is often unflattering but creates a character that is extremely relatable to a reader continually trying to do what is right, but stumbling nonetheless. Limhi's story for these readers can bring hope. Identifying Mormon's narrative strategies in the narrative account helps the reader understand what Amaron noted in the 10-year-old future writer, quote, a sober person, quick to observe, unquote. Mormon's narrative techniques, especially his treatment of Limhi, show a sensitive soul's response to the tragedy that was Noah's reign and its continuing effect on the Nephites. It is a message to us about tyranny and redemption. Hopefully, we can be just as sober and quick to observe as Mormon. Limhi. Zenith is to blame. A comparison of Zenith and Limhi. Mosiah 7 offers a summarized history of the Zenithites through a proclamation given by Limhi the Nephite's colonies' third king. It is important to know that Mormon specifically chose to record this portion of this talk out of the quote many things Limhi spoke to the people. Mormon doesn't always interrupt the flow of his narrative to speak directly to the reader, but he does so here employing the first person pronoun I. It may be that Mormon includes this speech to call our attention to Limhi in his sermon likely because it will differ from Mormon's presentation of this same history comprising Mormon 9 through 21. In chapter 21, Mormon's flashback returns to the time narrated in Mosiah 7. Limhi's sermon in chapter 7 helps characterize Limhi and the other characters in ways that the simple description could not. Additionally, including Limhi's and Zenef's point of view, as well as an abridged account that includes the multiple viewpoints, layers mormon's narrative with meaning in this combination of accounts mormon leaves the reader with leeway to form opinions and entertain multiple hypotheses in a way he puts us in his position the position of a later reader who has multiple viewpoints and records to weigh and wrestle in order to come up with god's message for us today according to some scholars this is precisely how hebrew narrative was written in the bible Instead of providing a single thoroughly argued answer, like the Greco-Roman tradition, the Hebrew authors merely suggest and indicate, making use of ambiguities and multiple viewpoints to guide the reader to the possibility of multiple hypotheses. These strategies were especially beneficial for nuancing and fleshing out the Bible's characters. It is from this standpoint in narrative strategy that this paper analyzes this segment of narratives and how its unique composition characterizes its cast of people. After Limhi addresses his people in Mosiah 7, Mormon takes the reader back two generations before Limhi to recount the beginning of the Zenithite in the colony through the first-person account by Zenith himself. In doing this, some of Limhi's statements in his sermon are seemingly supported. For example, Limhi's opinion of his grandfather Zenith. Quote, and ye are all witnesses this day that Zenith, who was made king over this people, he being overzealous to inherit the land of his fathers, therefore being deceived by the cunning and craftiness of King Laman, who having entered into a treaty with King Zenith, and having yielded up into his hand the possession of a part of the land, or even the city of Lehi Nephi and the city of Shilom and the land round about, and all this he did for the sake, for the sole purpose of bringing this people into subjection or into bondage. End of quote. Mosiah 7, 22 Zenith's record almost certainly informed Limhi's opinion. In his record, Zenith, with nearly the exact same wording Limhi used, confessed to, quote, being overzealous to inherit the land of their fathers. End of quote. Limhi's statement about the cunning and craftiness of Laman is likely lifted directly from Zenith's account also, where Zenith reported, quote, Now it was the cunning and craftiness of King Laman to bring my people into bondage that he yielded up the land that we might possess it. End of quote. However, the difference is that Zenith's account discusses the Lamanite king's failed intent to put the Zenithites into bondage, wherein Limhi's perspective is that the present bondage his people were experiencing was a result of Zenith's overzealousness, naivety, and the people's iniquity. Ironically, Mormon's account shows that Limhi suffers from the same faults Limhi accused his grandfather of, overzealousness and uh, naivety. Mormon presents Limhi continuously struggling struggling to make the right decisions despite his well-meaning intentions. From his first appearance on the stage in the Zenithite narrative, Mosiah chapter 7, Limhi is overzealously leaping to extreme conclusions. For example, the very expedition sent by King Mosiah to find the Xenophytes, and which would later help deliver them, ironically is mistaken to be the enemy by Limhi, who intends to execute them. Fortunately, Limhi gives them a moment to speak, and he learns that he almost killed a vital ally. After this discovery, Limhi then leaps from his role as interrogator to slave as he offers the lives of all his people into Ammon's hands. Not only does Limhi immediately see them as the saviors of his people, but he is also eager to change slave masters. After so many struggles and so much death in the pursuit to free themselves from bondage, Limhi, on first meeting Ammon and learning that other Nephites exist, he has never personally met the Nephite king, nor has he seen the way Nephite governance works, is suddenly excited to enslave himself and his people to the Nephites. After the former priests of Noah, who had been living in the wilderness, abducts some Lamanite women, another crisis emerges. The Lamanites assume the Xenophytes took their women and make preparations for war. In a surprising turn of events, Limhi, who has seen their preparations, likewise prepares and surprisingly routs the much larger army. The Lamanite king is found on the battlefield and is brought before Limhi for questioning. The Lamanite king reveals the reason for their attacks to Limhi, the abduction of the Lamanite women. Mormon sets the scene up so that the reader has privileged information over the cast, meaning the reader knows what Limhi and his people do not know yet. He has already narrated the abduction for the reader, so we can observe Limhi assess the situation incorrectly and almost endangers his own people. Sadly, this is not a singular example of Limhi endangering his own people. Fortunately, Gideon, who represents our Quote, better representative, is there to correct Limhi and guide him to make a better choice on this and other occasions. Upon hearing the false report from the Lamanite king, Limhi immediately trusts him and declares, quote, I will search among my people, and whosoever has done this thing shall perish. unquote. The ensuing search Limhi commissions is not intended to find out if someone has abducted the Lamanite women, but who among his people has done it. Without any corroborating evidence, Limhi trusts the same enemy who currently has them in bonds and who has just attacked them for a suspected crime of which he has no evidence. This is a complete reversal from Limhi's assessment of Ammon's group. When he mistook friends for foes, he is now mistaking the enemy for a friend. Fortunately, Gideon steps in to remind the king of the presence of his father's wicked priests and to recommend a less time-consuming course of action. The Lamanites were already preparing a follow-on attack, so they needed to convince the king that the perpetrators were the priests, and the Lamanite king needed to pacify his people. Gideon's plan works, and the assured destruction of the Xenophytes by the Lamanites' numerous hosts is averted. It is easy to see the hypocrisy in this situation, where Limhi will later condemn his grandfather for naively trusting a Lamanite king who offered them Lamanite lands to live in, and his own gullibility shown in this episode. Limhi neither questioned the Lamanite king's accusation, nor has any words in response to Gideon's poised but forceful redirection. Limhi appears to be flip-flopping between extreme opposite courses of action. Although Limhi can see Zenith's faults clearly, he may not realize that he is committing similar mistakes. Interestingly, Zenith's role in, in the bondage is much more nuanced than Limhi's representation. For example, Mormon uses Zenith as a, f- as a foil against the iniquities of his son Noah. In fact, the most important element of Limhi's sermon is not what he says, but what he does not say, or who he does not mention. Noah is conspicuously absent from Limhi's brief rehearsal of the people's suffering. This is strange because according to Mormon's abridgment of this a- account, it is without, without question Noah. Who leads the people to iniquity and therefore almost single-handedly causes their unhappy state of bondage to the Lamanites. This difference is pivotal to the characterization of both Zenith and Limhi. To Limhi, Zenith is complicit in the cause for the people's bondage, but this may not be completely accurate. In agreement with Limhi, some scholars reference some of the content within Abinadi's speeches to suggest that Zenith is in fact disobeying God by moving his people back to the land of inheritance. And this may be true. However, Mormon's design for this narrative suggests that this possible error was not as grievous as the iniquity brought on by Noah's wicked reign. Mormon holds up Zenith as an example of a good king, against which the reader is meant to contrast the blunders and iniquities of Noah. Mormon's organization of the Zenithite narrative seems to suggest that while Zenith led the people within reach of the enemy, the people were protected by the Lord under Zenith's rule. Instead, it was Noah that led his people into the Lamanites' hands. Mormon Noah is to blame. This section provides a fairly comprehensive analysis of the methods Mormon used to convince the reader that Noah is the cause of the people's suffering in bondage. This analysis provides evidence to support this theory, but perhaps more importantly, it endeavors to highlight what problems could arise by empathizing with Noah. So when Limhi is unable to criticize his father in the summation of his people's situation in Mosiah 7, it factors into the return reader's calculus that points to Limhi's dangerous reign. By dangerous, I'm referring to the multiple occasions where Limhi imperils his people. Additionally, a critical look at the methods Mormon employs to highlight Noah's wickedness also sheds light on Mormon's personality. In other words, Mormon's characterization of Noah also characterizes himself. With the change in kingship from Zenith to Noah, the narrative in the style of the Bible shows how Noah veers away from the path of his father to become the root cause of the people's iniquities. Matthew Bowen points out that, quote, "...the statement that Noah did not walk in the ways of his father..." levies an immediate and distinctively negative evaluation of him as a king and of his kingship. In fact, the rest of Mormon's King Noah narrative and every mention of him thereafter can be seen more or less as a fleshing out of the statement, end of quote. The implication of this statement for Zenith is that he was a righteous example against whom Mormon compares Noah. According to Mormon, Zenith, quote, kept the commandments of the Lord, unquote, Generally, the narrative clearly shows Noah to be the root cause of the people's wickedness. Bullet 1. Noah had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit sin and do that which was abominable in the sight of the the Lord. Yea, and the people did commit whoredoms in all manner of wickedness. Bullet 2. Noah creates a tax to support himself and his newly consecrated priests, and thus they were supported in their laziness and in their idolatry, and in their whoredoms by the taxes which King Noah had put upon his people. Thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. And the people also became idolatrous because the people were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and priests, end of quote. Bullet 3. Quote, Noah became a winebibber and also his people, end of quote. The narrative presents the people mirroring the actions of their king, who is completely going against the actions of the previous king, another important point to the narrative. Bullet 1. Quote, and Noah did not walk in the ways of his father, for behold, Noah did not keep the commandments of God. End of quote. Bullet 2. Quote, Thus Noah had changed the affairs of the kingdom end of quote, by laying down taxes. Bullet 3. Noah put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father and consecrated new ones in their stead, Such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts, end of quote. Fourth bullet point, against some Lamanite incursions, quote, Noah sent his armies, unquote, instead of leading them personally like his father, who did so, quote, in the strength of the Lord, end of quote. Noah chose to walk in the same iniquitous path as his biblical predecessors Solomon and Rehoboam, who burdened the people with heavy taxes, Biblical scholar Amos Frisch, for example, noted specific language in First King that has clear parallels with the term, quote, harsh labor, unquote, used to describe Israelite toil under Solomon's taxation and building projects to the bondage they experienced in Egypt. Frisch comments that, quote, Solomon is in his twilight years compared to Pharaoh, end of quote. Noah, like Solomon, made his people, quote, labor exceedingly, unquote, through his taxation and building projects, and is himself compared to Pharaoh. When Noah hears of Abinadi's words to the people, he asks, quote, who is the Lord? End of quote. Just like Pharaoh does when confronted by Moses in Exodus 5-2. In a similar way to Noah, we got rid of the old count, who got rid of the old counselors to Zenith in favor of younger, more wicked ones, Rehoboam also refused to listen to the elders and the people who were in favor of lessening the burdens on the people. In response to the iniquities of Solomon and Rehoboam, God split the people of Israel into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, a tragedy which, in opposition to Limhi's speech, was caused almost entirely by Noah and had almost nothing to do with Zenith. Because of Noah, the people were wicked. Because of Noah, there were wicked priests. Noah and his priests' wicked examples lead the people beyond the wickedness listed above and towards violence. Up to the battle described briefly in Mosiah 11, 18-19, the people are shown copying the king. Yet the narration describing the bloodthirsty nature of the people begins to deviate from the previous mimicking model. After a small victory, Mormon narrates that the people, quote, did boast and did delight in blood, And the shedding of blood of their brethren, this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. End of quote. It is not as clear how the ambiguous wickedness of the king and the priests directly led to the people's thirst for blood. So far, Noah has shown no predilection for violent behavior. He did not even lead his army to battle. The people are not copying Noah here per se, but the narrator continues guiding the reader to see that the people's behavior is still caused by Noah. This is likely because the people are about to respond violently to Abinadi, and the narrator is leading the reader to blame Noah for their behavior. Abinadi calls the people to repentance and to turn back to God, or or else they they will be brought under bondage. Without authorization from the king or any outside encouragement, the people try to kill Abinadi. They are unsuccessful, but the desire and willingness to act were there. Afterwards, King Noah hears of Abinadi's preaching, is wroth, and like the people, wants Abinadi dead. He commands the people to bring Abinadi to him so that he can slay the prophet. The narrator interjects again to convince the reader that Noah is leading the people as the narrative marches on to what appears now to be Abinadi's assured death. This insertion by Mormon is important because what is about to happen looks contrary to what Mormon has so carefully constructed for the reader, that is, Everything is Noah's fault. As we will see later, this contradiction provides us greater access to Mormon's character as well. Now the eyes of the people were blinded; therefore, they hardened their hearts against the words of Benadai, and they sought from that time forward to take him. And King Noah hardened his heart against the word of the Lord, and he did not repent of his evil doings. End of quote. Mosiah 11:29. The people are now primed and ready to take Abinadi. So when the Lord calls on Abinadi next to preach, the people apprehend him and bring him to the king. This is the turning point in the narrative where the people's and the priest's wickedness start to overtake Noah's. This growing wickedness is very much like a flame, a fitting image in this narrative full of deaths by fire, Noah's wickedness was the spark that stoked the people's and the priests' violent behavior into a blaze that burns out of Noah's control. At some key moments, both the people's and the priest's lust for blood outstrips the king's. Eventually, the people and priests pressure the king to execute Abinadi by fire, and then with burning resentment, Noah's own people feed him to the flames as well. When the people bring Abinadi to the king, the narrative shows them manipulating Noah through a structure of repetition where Abinadi's message of doom gets repeated by the people in their report to the king. According to the narrative, Abinadi includes one prophecy of doom aimed specifically at Noah, but the people report three, bulleted below. Mormon's artful repetition of the people's report of Abinadi's preaching reveals the people's intention. Mormon is allowing the reader to indirectly perceive the state of the Xenophite people by disclosing their strategies to manipulate the king. They are reporting Abinadi's preaching, but maximizing the threats against Noah in order to enrage him, while simultaneously minimizing Abinadi's words against the people. Abinadi's narrative pros- prophecy against Noah, quote, and it shall come to pass that after the life of King Noah shall be valued even as a garment in a hot furnace, but he shall know that I am the Lord, end of quote, Mosiah 12, 3. The people's report of three prophecies against Noah, one, Quote, and he also prophesieth evil concerning the life, and saith that that life shall be as a garment in a furnace of fire. End of quote. Messiah twelve ten. Next, quote, and again he saith that thou shalt be as a stalk, even as a dry stalk of the field, which is r- ran over by the beasts and trodden under foot. End of quote. Messiah twelve eleven. And finally, quote, and again he saith thou shalt be as a, as the blossoms of a thistle which when it is fully ripe, if the wind bloweth, it is driven forth upon the face of the land. And he pretendeth the Lord hath spoken it. And he saith, All this shall come upon thee, except thou repent, and this because of thine iniquities. End of quote. Mosiah 12.12 12. <clears throat> In Abinadi's reported words in Mosiah twelve one through 8 most of the threats made by Abinadi are actually against the people. The narrative is showing the people manipulating the king, trying to get him angry so that he will execute him. Mormon's once ironclad case against Noah seems to progressively become more ambiguous. Ultimately, the people's subtle artifices is completed by their merely suggestive tone in quote, behold, here is the man. We deliver him into thy hands. Thou mayest do with him, as seemeth thee good, end of quote. The implication is clear. The people are handing Abinadi over to the king for execution. Ultimately, they are leveling two charges against Abinadi. According to John W. Welch, the the two charges are lying concerning the king and false prophesying. See Mosiah 12.14 This structure of repetition reveals the cunning artifice of a people who are bloodthirsty enough to want a prophet dead and a king to do it for them. Mormon's account stresses Noah's life Noah's accountability for the iniquity of the people. As much as Limhi may have wanted to see the people as the real reason behind Abinadi's death, in the end, Noah ordered his death. Welsh observed, quote, Noah alone entered the judgment against Abinadi and turned him over for execution, end of quote. Noah didn't need the people to help him hate Abinadi any more than the people required Noah's help for the same purpose. Despite all the chances he had to change his mind, Noah did not. Abinadi miraculously manifested God's power in front of Noah. Abinadi theologically pounded the priests in front of him. In response to Abinadi's preaching, Alma pled for Noah to spare Abinadi. And even after Noah himself began to question the decision to execute Abinadi, he ultimately caved into the priests in order to Benedict's death. However, this ambiguity in the buildup of Benedict's death manifests an important characteristic of Mormon, highlighted by Grant Hardy. Quote, Mormon sees himself as a historian with the responsibility to tell the story of his civilization comprehensively and accurately. End of quote. Hardy continues, quote, Mormon believes that history fairly and objectively written will provide an adequate demonstration of God's providence and design. End of quote. Although Mormon seems to go to great lengths to present Noah as the root cause of the people's wickedness and for the death of Abinadi, his ideological purposes are not enough for him to change the account to more narrowly focus the reader on Noah. Instead, he, s- he tells a more complete story with ambiguity relying on strong commentary against Noah to help the reader to clearly grasp his ideological message. Even so, Mormon's stringent adherence to history can more fully convince the reader to trust him as the editor. We can see the care he takes to relay his message with artistry and accuracy. Relatedly, Mormon's sincerity is one of the characteristics that personally touched me and opened me up to the possibility that Mormon's message about Christ was sincere and could be accurate, too. Limhi and Mormon, Perspectives on Abinadi's Murder, Limhi and Noah Limhi's account stresses the unique doctrine about Christ as the reason he was executed. But Mormon's account stresses that the people and the king did not actually care a bit about Abinadi's specific doctrine about Christ. In fact, Abinadi's teachings, as presented by Mormon, do not even include the name of Christ, much less any doctrine about him. Even so, the people and the king want to kill Abinadi because they felt he had judged them. In Abinadi's second attempt at prophesying to the people and calling on them to repent— Mormon does not record any teachings about Christ. And like the first attempt, he's a, he does not even mention Christ's name. Again, this does not matter to the people. They bind him and bring him to the king anyway. It is only after he is brought to the king that Abinadi teaches, to, teaches about Christ, and the priests and, and the king find something wherewith to accuse him. Limhi's perspective that Abinadi was killed for teaching specific doctrine about Christ is different from Mormons, who shows that the people and the king wanted to kill Abinadi solely because they did not like being judged. They did not want to repent. The difference of perspective stems from Noah. Limhi's perspective is colored by the official record Noah left, meaning the false pretenses Noah and his priests used to justify murdering Abinadi. Although Limhi has access to other information information, He chooses to continue to circulate his father's viewpoint. This is Limhi's speech. Quote, And because he said unto them that Christ was God, the father of all things, and said that he could take upon him the image of a man, and it should be the image after which man was created in the beginning, or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God, and that God should come down among the children of men and take upon him flesh and blood and go forth upon the face of the earth. And now because he said this, they did put him to death. End of quote, Mosiah 7, 27 through 28. And this is the final accusation, although a pretense submitted by Noah and his priests. Quote, Abinadi, we have found an accusation against thee, and thou art worthy of death. For thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. And now for this cause thou shalt be put to death. End of quote, Mosiah 17:7 7 through 8. Mormon guides the reader to see that this accusation is merely a pretense, because right after Noah makes this accusation, he offers what John Welch refers to as, quote, a curious plea bargain, end of quote. Noah puts it this way, quote, Thou shalt be put to death unless thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people, end of quote. Noah is not asking him to retract the statements about God that Noah's official accusation highlights, but rather desires that Abinadi retract his condemnation of Noah and the people's wickedness. This plea bargain shows that Abinadi was killed because he spoke out against the king and the people's wickedness, and not because Abinadi preached about Christ, as suggested by Limhi. Welsh further defines Noah's plea bargain thus, quote, Noah's conduct here is despicable and wholly self-centered. His willingness to forget the charge that Abinadi had blasphemously offended God if Abinadi would simply withdraw his words is blatantly driven by selfish, unrepentant concerns. End of quote. Reviewing Noah's iniquities in detail is important because it shows how much Limhi had to overlook when he did not mention his father as the reason for his people's bondage. In his public speech in Mosiah chapter 7, Additionally, when Limhi later recounts Abinadi's death to his people in Mosiah 7, he states his father's trumped-up charges as a reason for Abinadi's execution. Limhi's agreement with these charges manifests a weakness in Limhi. Limhi knew his father was wicked, but he preferred, it seems, to continue in a certain state of denial. Mormon states that Limhi was, quote, not ignorant of the iniquities of his father, End of quote. But he was still unwilling to blame him for the bondage forced upon his people, and he was unwilling to acknowledge his father's pride and selfishness as the real force behind the Abinadai's killing. Limhi most likely had access to a lot of the records Mormon used to make up, of, make up his account. He could have accepted and expressed the, the faults of his father, but he chose not to. It is due to this very bias for his father that Limhi makes a grave mistakes as a new vassal king to the Lamanites. After the Lamanites capture the Xenophytes, they give the Xenophytes two conditions. One, give half of all their possessions to the Lamanites annually, and two, deliver up Noah to the Lamanites. Failure to meet these conditions would result in their death. Even after all Noah had done, Limhi struggled with surrendering his father. According to Mormon, quote, and now Limhi was desirous that his father should not be destroyed, end of quote. It seems Limhi either hesitated to make this decision or was planning to disobey this condition because Gideon is obliged to send men out secretly to look for Noah. This possibility that Limhi may have been willing to imperil his people because of a lingering loyalty to the very person who caused this horrific scenario in the first place is a telling but life-threatening mistake. It seems a selfish or at least self-centered act to imperil the very same people who had just made him king to protect his villainous and cowardly father. Accordingly, Gideon's, quote, secret envoy, unquote, is most likely only hidden from Limhi, who is supported by the fact that the Lamanites already knew that Noah had fled. Therefore, Gideon would have no need to hide his search efforts from the Lamanites. This preposition that the secret envoy was only hidden from Limhi is also supported by the chain of reporting that ensues. Noah's death is reported to Gideon's men and then to Gideon, but never reported in the narrative to Limhi. The fact that Gideon felt that he had to hide his search party from Limhi reveals just how serious Limhi was about protecting his father at the possible expense of his people. The direct result of the report of Noah's death sets up the oath between the Lamanite king and Limhi. This is the first of three times that Gideon acts to save the people, despite Limhi's unwitting efforts to compromise their safety. It is important to note that a report about his father's last days as king were likely provided to Limhi. During the siege from the Lamanites, Noah not only used his concern for his people as a pretense to stay Gideon's sword, but exploits the women and children of his own people to escape. Limhi comes to power as a result of the Lamanite takeover and his father's cowardly flight. Limhi's reaction to the news of his father's revoltingly selfish acts in Noah's final days as king unfortunately, are not included in the record. Even after all this, Limhi neither condemns nor even mentions his father in Limhi's accounting of his people's history in Mosiah 7. The speech, although encountered first by the reader, actually occur- occurred many years after these events. But even so, Limhi seems unable to speak evil of his father. An additional method Mormon employs to innovatively and indirectly convince the reader of Noah's iniquity— And therefore indirectly criticize Limhi's lingering issues, is to have the modern reader read Mormon's abridged account along with characters in the narrative. To further guide the reader's own perception of this account, Mormon includes the reaction from Ammon's group to the history of the Xenophytes in Mosiah 21, 28-31. When we read the account of the events from most of the same records available to Limhi, but with a different perspective than Limhi's, we can get a deeper understanding of how affected Limhi was by his wicked father. This method of supplying the same information to the reader and a group of characters in the narrative is called an even-handed approach, which is detailed in the next section. Mormon and Limhi, Reading Records Noted by James Falconer, the Book of Mosiah, which houses the Zenified story, is quote, underscored by its unconventional narrative which forces us to read it in chunks that are out of chronological order end of quote evinced by editorial comments this anachronistic narrative structure seems intentional as an important tool for the reader to reconstruct the meaning and intent of these narratives this unconventional structure also forces the reader into an even-handed position where we experience the drama of reading records with the characters, we find and read records together. Mormon can facilitate a reading experience through variously introducing and interpreting various records that the reader encounters with the characters. Of particular interest to this paper is the simultaneous reading experienced by the reader and Ammon's group. This happens with the Xenophyte record comprising Mosiah chapters, two, chapters nine through twenty one verse twenty one where we read it at the same time as Ammon and his group. Ammon and the reader learn about the Xenophyte history at the same time through Limhi's speech. After Limhi's synopsis of his people's history, he presents Ammon with the records of his people from the time they left the, Neph- the Nephites up until Limhi's reign for him to read. Mormon delays informing the reader about Ammon's responses to the records until after he allows us to read Mormon's edited account of Xenophyte history as well. It is only after the reader is caught up that Mormon provides Ammon and his company's response to Xenophyte history. This anachronistic strategy allows Mormon to guide the reader's own reaction to Xenophyte history by providing Ammon's reaction to the same history Ammon and the reader just read. These reactions led the reader to be saddened by the loss of life depicted in Xenophyte history, to blame Noah and his priests for the iniquity of the people, and to mourn the death of Abinadi and the departure of Alma. Quote, Ammon and his brethren were filled with sorrow because so many of the brethren had been slain, and also that King Noah and his priests had caused the people to commit so many sins and iniquities against God, and they also did mourn for the death of Abinadi, and also for the departure of Alma and the people that went with him, who had formed a church of God, to the strength and power of God, and faith on the words which had been spoken by Abinadi. What this party's response also implies may be that Limhi, who had the same access to the records he provided Ammon's group, could also have had the same reaction as they did, but Limhi didn't. For all his interest and love of records, shown in Mosiah 8, 5-21, Limhi does not seem to know how to read them objectively. This creative strategy lets Mormons show us rather than tell us about the personal impact a wicked king can have not only on his people, but especially on his son. Despite all the suffering Limhi endured because of his father's sins and mismanagement of his kingdom, Limhi was still unwilling to accept or even publicly acknowledge them. Mormon unequivocally shows and tells the reader that Noah was the true problem for the Xenophytes, but merely shows us through nuance how Limhi responded to Noah's iniquitous legacy. Fortunately, Limhi and the Xenophyte story does not end with the death of Abinadi. Mormon and Limhi. God delivers his people. Alma compared to Limhi. Mormon is quick to show the reader that Abinadi did not die in vain. Right after he narrates Abinadi's tragic ending, Mormon narrates the birth of the church through Abinadi's only apparent convert, Alma. Alma, along with Abinadi, is the undisputed hero of the Xenophyte account. He represents the best in this account. Mormon expresses his condemnation of Alma through some of Mormon's most direct engagement with his overall work, the Book of Mormon, and certainly his most blatant engagement in the text of the Xenophyte narrative. Meyer Sternberg has noted that the biblical, quote, narrator's participation ensures the appearance of one member whose reliability is beyond doubt, an authorized reference point to which we may safely appeal in order to sort out and motivate the versions originating in the other participants end of quote as mormon narrates the watershed event of alma baptizing his secret converts he authorizes alma and alma's point of view by participating in the text in a unique and powerfully personal way mormon is not just the name of the place where the baptism occurs mormon himself becomes the setting the authorized witness condoning the event and its agent alma through repetition Mormon repeats his own name twelve times in the chapter and six times in one verse. Quote, and now it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon, how beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to the knowledge of their redeemer. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing to his praise forever end of quote Mosiah eighteen thirty. This seems to be more than a simple description of the setting. This is Mormon deliberately signaling the reader to Mormon's own presence in the narrative. His approval of the scene is intentionally obvious because he is framing Alma as the authorized reference point of this narrative. His version, Alma's version, quote, will figure as the tale's objective truth, end of quote. This becomes important because Mormon will use Alma as the licensed point of view from which the reader can judge Mormon's next structure of repetition. Mormon pens a parallel sequence of two stories about two separate peoples that seem intended to be, to be read as a single type of story told twice. Alma and his people are the authorized party and Limhi and his people are the foil. Mormon organizes the two stories to not only show that Alma's party is favored, but also that Limhi's party is not the authorized group. Mormon does not villainize Limhi or his people like he villainizes Noah, but he appears purposeful about his handling of Limhi's worldview. The portrayal that Limhi provides for himself in his speech in Mosiah chapter 7 is that of a person who sees God's hand in the history and lives of his people. Of major importance to the Xenophite's narrative, Limhi saw God as about to deliver them, even speaking as a prophet, quote, but if you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, and put your trust in Him, and serve Him with all diligence of mind, if you if you do this, He will, according to His own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. End of quote. Mosiah 7:33. For example, Limhi also enthusiastically praises God in elevated language, peppered with scripture, in a dialogue with Ammon about records. Limhi seems to know the scriptures and sees God's presence in his life. However, in Mormon's narration of Limhi's story, God is basically absent. He is not a driving force in the people's lives. God's name only appears in one dialogue when Gideon refers to Abinadi's prophecies to Limhi. See Mosiah 20.21. 20, Apart from his first speech in Mosiah chapter 7 and his dialogues with Ammon, in Mormon's narration of Limhi's life, Limhi never speaks of God. Mormon narrates that Limhi entered into a covenant with God, That he wanted to be baptized, but Limhi has no speeches where he mentions God, not even at times when it is most expected. Limhi's original speech in Mosiah chapter 7 sets the people up to expect God to deliver them, but when deliverance occurs, Limhi is not given any words to confirm his prophetic statement in Mosiah 7.33. We might also expect some words either from Limhi or from the narrator in regards to the miraculously victorious battle between Limhi's forces and the Lamanites in Mosiah chapter 20. But Mormon keeps the narrative squarely in the realm of nature. Instead of the wording used in Zenith's narrative about, quote, going up in the strength of the Lord, quote, Limhi's forces, quote, fought like lions for their prey, quote, like dragons did they fight, end of quote. The Lord is absent. Due to his first speech and subsequent dialogue, one can imagine <clears throat> that Limhi saw the events of his people in a divine context, with God as a driving force, but that is not what the reader sees. I argue that Mormon is designing the reader's experience to first experience a world without God, so that we can appreciate a world with God in the parallel account. Mormon provides the reader the deliverance of the people of Alma. Moreover, Mormon's handling of the events of Limhi's people creates dissonance with Abinadi's prophecies and his own foreshadowing. This appears to be an indirection, a rhetorical tool that can better aid Mormon in leading the reader to discover the truth by first presenting the seeming dissonance between prophecy and fulfillment. The motive for this treatment only becomes clearly visible upon a comparison between the parallel deliverance accounts, one of the people of Limhi and the other of the people of Alma. Mormon highlights Abinadi's prophecy in context with the Xenophytes' struggles. Originally, Abinadi prophesied that the Xenophytes would, would, quote, be brought into bondage and none shall deliver them except it be the Lord, the Almighty God, end of quote. Later, Mormon re-emphasizes this complete dependence on God as he comments on the futility in the Xenophytes' attempts, Limhi's people, to free themselves from bondage, quote, the affliction of the Xenophytes was great, and there was no way that they could deliver themselves out of the Lamanites' hands, end of quote. The reader plays witting witness to the abysmal failure that ensures as the people try to deliver themselves with a force of arms. Finally, when King Limhi holds his counsel to work out the means to, quote, to deliver themselves from bondage, end of quote, Mormon prepares the reader for disappointment, except Gideon's plan works and it appears like Limhi's people do deliver themselves without God. Mormon maintains this dissonance in order to show with piercing clarity how the subset of xenophytes with Alma is delivered by the hand of God. Mormon is intentionally confusing the reader through indirection or misdirection, not because he is trying to mislead us or misinform us, but he is employing a classic biblical literary art to lead the reader to work out the truth for ourselves. Similar to the way Mormon prefaced the Xenophytes' delivery under Limhi's reign with, with prophecy, Mormon ties the deliverance of Alma's people to Abinadai's prophecy through an obvious illusion that foreshadows their deliverance. Note Mormon's full interruption of the narrative to talk to the reader directly. We are the you, and he is the I, in his words, quote I will show unto you that they were brought into bondage, and none could deliver them but the Lord their God. End of quote. Mosiah twenty three twenty three. This is Mormon establishing his sanctioned point of view. God works overtly in the account of Alma and his people's deliverance from bondage to Amulon, and the remaining wicked priests of Noah. This difference between Abinadi's prophecy and its fulfillment in the stories of the two people is confusing, until Alma, Mormon's mouthpiece, enlightens the people and the reader, which is the capstone to this brilliant display of Mormon's narrative art. The answer is that the Lord did deliver Limhi's people. The Xenophytes just missed God's hand in the process. When Alma speaks to the combined congregation of the main Nephite population and the reunited Xenophytes, Limhi and Alma's people, he specifically addresses Limhi's people to remind them, quote, that it was the Lord that did deliver them, end of quote. This subtly rebukes the people and Gideon, who boldly stated to Limhi, quote, I will be thy servant and deliver this people out of bondage. End of quote. Mosiah two four. The parallel accounts of very similar deliverances from bondage allows the reader to experience the same deliverance twice: once from a world without revelation, Lemhi's people, and once again with our eyes open to God's action, Alma's people. Mormon can exploit the contrasting levels of spiritual sight between these two groups to teach us, the reader, about our own lives. Perhaps we are blind to God's saving arm in our lives at times, but that does not mean God is absent. We just are not looking for him or we do not know how to spot his presence within the growing noise of the world around us. These parallel accounts can theologically reward the reader with a subtle sermon on the importance of faith and revelation, but they also inadvertently continue the criticism leveled against Limhi for his sympathetic views of his wicked father. When Mormon included Limhi's perspective regarding King Noah, it worked to emphasize Mormon's villainization of Noah, but it also inadvertently caught Limhi in the crossfire. Similarly, Mormon's possible removal of God from the narrative in Limhi's experience emphasizes Alma's spiritual standing in contrast to Limhi's. This is a striking example of how a repetitive structure can characterize a narrative's caste. Throughout the Xenophyte account, Mormon highlights how Limhi continues to make poor judgments as a possible result of his lack of revelation in spiritual sight. His multitude of errors and the exuberance by which he commits them may leave his life open to a humorous interpretation by a modern reader, but was almost certainly not part of Mormon's original intent. Highlighting Limhi's weaknesses, a possible comedy of errors, without the full guidance of the spirit, and suffering under a likely bias from his from and for his father, Mormon presents Limhi continuously struggling to make the right decisions, despite his well-meaning intentions. On many occasions, Limhi jumps from extremes based on surface-level data. However, on at least two incorrect positions, he is quite fixed. He maintains a bias for his father, and he believes that combat is the way to deliverance for his people. Limhi's trust in the force of arm Arms is first seen upon his meeting with Ammon's group. Coincident with the arrival of Ammon's party, Limhi boldly declares to his people that deliverance, quote, is at hand or is not far distant, end of quote, but also confesses, quote, I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made, end of quote. Limhi almost certainly uses the word struggle here to refer to combat, seeing that he includes the three failed battles with the Lamanites as part of their many strugglings, which had been in vain. After Mormon's chronological displacement, forming Mosiah chapters 9-21, through 21, returns back to the encounter with Ammon, everyone is trying to identify a way to, quote, deliver themselves from bondage, end quote. After deliberating, they finally realize that the sword will not work. Gideon presents a plan that involves inebriating the Lamanite guards to escape without sustaining or inflicting a single casualty. Limhi's flair for dramatics peaks out of the narrative in his execution of Gideon's plan. Gideon's plan called for a, quote, tribute of wine, end of quote, to be given to the Lamanite guards so that they would become drunk. When Limhi sends the tribute, quote, he also sent more wine, end of quote, which might have been a critical part of the plan. But it also could be over overenthusiastic personality reaching out of the page. Limhi's exuberance also could turn his negotiation of talking points for his and Ammon's speeches into a comical moment. Limhi has only just met Ammon and learned of Zarahemla, and yet he is the one who is telling his people, quote, all the things concerning their brethren which were in the land of Zarahemla, end of quote, instead of Ammon, who is certainly much more qualified to speak of all things about the Nephites and Zarahemla. Similarly, the same over-enthusiasm can be seen in Limhi's dialogue with Ammon about records, where Limhi seems eager to teach Ammon about seers. After Ammon mentions that King Mosiah is a seer, Limhi declares, quote, a seer is greater than a prophet, end of quote. Limhi seems overly enthused to demonstrate his knowledge, regardless of how superficial his knowledge might be. Unfortunately for Limhi, Ammon corrects him slightly, expounding to him that, quote, a seer is a revelator and a prophet also, end of quote it's significant to point out that Mormon did not need to add any of these dialogues into his abridgment. In fact, he omitted many important things because he couldn't even, quote, write the hundredth part of the things of his people, end of quote. Mormon may have had many reasons for including the information that he ultimately presented in his record. However, what he does pass on to us is often critical of Limhi. Limhi is almost always wrong inadvertently making poor decisions. His litany of errors and the exuberance by which he commits them can make him seem like a cliché character in a cartoon who can never win. A modern reader may find this humorous or endearing, but humor was almost certainly not Mormon's purpose. Mormon's characterization accentuates some of Limhi's worst moments, which might be why Mormon reminds the reader that Limhi is, quote, a just man, so that we don't judge him too harshly. Fortunately, Mormon also includes some key events that showcase how Limhi channels his overzealous personality to his acceptance of the gospel. Limhi's weaknesses become strong through the gospel. Ammon's arrival to the Xenophytes not only brings the hope of physical deliverance to the people, but also the hope of salvation, as declared by King Benjamin, When Ammon stands before the people, he rehearses, quote, the last words which King Benjamin had taught, end of quote, and quote, explain them to the, to the people of King Limhi, end of quote. The effect of these words is reflected in Mormon's statement, quote, and now since the coming of Ammon, King Limhi has also entered into a covenant with God and also many of his people to serve him and to keep his commandments, end of quote. This covenant is most likely the covenant made by the Nephites after hearing King Benjamin's watershed speech narrated in Mosiah 5, 5 5-9 and 6, 1-2. Additionally, Limhi leads his people in his desire to be baptized, quote, And it came to pass that King Limhi and many of his people were desirous to be baptized, end of quote. In both of these statements, Mormon places Limhi first and then his people, so that the word order itself suggests Limhi is leading his people to God. Finally, when the Xenophytes have their chance for baptism, Limhi leads the way again as all of his people are baptized, and not just, quote, many of his people, end of quote. quote. and it came to pass that after Alma had taught the people many things and had made an end of speaking to them, that King Limhi was desirous that he might be baptized, and all his people were desirous that they might be baptized also. Although most of the Xenophyte narrative highlights on Limhi's weaknesses, Limhi's conversion and enthusiasm for making covenants with God are results of the same unique personality. I argue that Mormon, who purposefully chosen narratives that included Limhi's weaknesses, did not highlight these for the reader to, con- to condemn Limhi, but rather in Mormon's artful rendering of these narratives, the reader can find a relatable example in Limhi. Despite his many errors, Limhi remained willing to accept correction. Limhi, although plagued by his bias for his wicked father, did not have to follow his father's example of pride and incalcitrant behavior before the messengers of the Lord. In fact, when the messengers from God came, Limhi chose to accept their message and lead his people to baptism. In the end, we can learn from Limhi's willingness to repent. After all, repentance brings salvation. The baptism of the Xenophytes marks the closing curtain for Limhi. He is never mentioned again. Mormon's handling of the Xenophyte narrative story presents Limhi as a dynamic, dramatic, humorously endearing, and ultimately a Christian of conviction. He is an example of someone whose weaknesses become strong through the influence of humility and God's grace. Mormon's characterization strategies described here are a credit to his art and support the hypothesis that he is an inheritor of the poetics of biblical narrative. These narrative strategies also suggest that the Book of Mormon is an authentic ancient record. His narrative strategies not only characterize the people in his narrative, but also characterize him. The care Mormon took in crafting his abridgment reveals his observational prowess. He saw God's hands in his people's history, and he went to great lengths to teach his reader how to see it too. This characterization of Limhi is a personal message about how wickedness and tyranny affect individuals. When I read the Book of Mormon, I feel Mormon's love for Christ and his love for me, an individual trying to make sense of his carefully constructed history. The act of writing seems to have been an extremely personal endeavor for Mormon, and perhaps reading the book that bears his name should be a personal activity for us too. Narrative Strategies Employed on the Xenophyte Narrative and their effect on limhai by Nathan J. Arp. Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, volume 59, 2023. Read by Nathan J. Arp. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.